Hello. Congratulations on reaching 100 episodes. That is a big achievement and you've provided so much helpful information for so many of us. I'm very grateful and I'm sure many other people are as well. Thank you so much for those very kind comments. Darren Schmidt, I'm Rob Woodward, and you and I are divorce lawyers helping folks navigate the six divorced and done steps to move through the divorce quickly and efficiently without bankrupting themselves emotionally or financially. Everything we talk about in this show is for your information, but it is not legal advice or legal opinion of any kind. And thank you again for those great comments off the top. Darren, since last week, you and I are now done episode 100, and as is the mode, we don't ca- we don't count episodes, so we won't say this is episode 101, but in light of that, how are you doing? Rob, I am so amazing now that we're back, but we're going to be back for a moment, and then you're going on holidays, and you're going to Hawaii. So why don't you tell everyone about your fancy lawyer vacation to Hawaii? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, because your lawyer is so rich and so loaded and just take it. uh, It snowed. There's a snowflake on the ground. I'm going to Hawaii. No, I go in with my family. As you know, I greatly enjoy spending time with my parents. My girlfriend and I are going with my sister and her husband and my parents. We're going to spend a little bit more than a week there. I think it will be a lovely time of just beach and reading. But I will be gone for two weeks or about a week and a half. So I think you were going to drive the bus a little bit in my absence. I am. While you're out surfing and catching rays, I'll be throwing down maybe one episode. I'll pick a topic. Okay. We'll do uh, have a little divorced and done time. If you want to drop a speak pipe, Rob, on your vacation and just plop in and say hi, I could I could try oh, and weave that in. That's a good idea. To an episode, and you could just let us all know about how good your life is, how amazing you are, and how good you're doing. Because actually, in all seriousness, it's it's really good you're going on vacation. It's important because otherwise you burn out. We don't want you burning out. We we want you happy. That's right. And I've actually, as you know, when I've gone on vacation to other parts of the world, I say, hello, I'm a political and legal tourist here to view your political institution or view your legal institution. I was discussing with my girlfriend whether we're going to go to family chambers in Hawaii. I kind of want to sweep in there just into Hawaiian family court and see what that's all about. But I imagine it's probably very similar to what we do in our neck of the woods pick up some divorced and done listeners maybe and go talk to some people and be like you think this is good wait till you're driving in your car looking at the hawaiian sunset listening to divorced and done actually now that you've just said that i should take a bunch of those nice postcards that you had printed up with our faces on them and just like (laughs) stick them up in a bunch of cafes might it do anything probably not but but i could do that Well, something you can do if you're listening is always send us questions. We're going to do some questions today. As always, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com or speakpipe.com slash divorced and done. Those links are in the show notes. 
We love hearing from you. We love your feedback, questions, comments, all that stuff. So let's get to question one this morning, evening, afternoon, night, whenever you're listening. Listener says, in this instance, good morning. Good morning to you. Listener says, my ex has refused to cooperate with the divorce process the whole way, but my question is about extracurricular activities. All right, let's do a 180 and talk not about cooperation, but about extracurriculars. In almost two years, she had never brought our boy to his activities and only occasionally brought our daughter to dance. When I've questioned her about it, she said she was sick on all of those days, what I view as very, very, very astronomical odds. The kids are also frequently absent from school while at her place. Her usual excuse is that she has some health setback, like a headache or something else and can't drive. She has agreed to all of the extracurricular activities and paid for half of them. I believe there are deeper issues here, but I don't want to start a fight. What can I do? All right, Rob. Cool. So we got some extracurriculars. We got uh, the other party that's not taking the kids there. Maybe some health issues, maybe not. What do you think? Well, number one, children not going to school uh, is not acceptable. And you say frequently absent from school while they're at her place. Uh, that's not an excuse. And if she has a headache and can't drive, the answer is really simple. You don't say what your parenting structure is. Is it appropriate for her to be a parent during that time? Maybe, maybe not. But you also say you don't want to start a fight. So depending on how close the two of you are together, maybe the answer is if she feels she has a headache, can't drive, can't get this kids to or from school on certain days, that either you offer to do that or suggest maybe she has a parent, maybe a grandparent could help facilitate those pieces. Because kids going to school is really important and we can't miss that. Similarly, on extracurricular activities... Uh, if you've paid for them, you should want your children to go. And if they're structured activities like dance, if your kids are only going half the time, they're likely missing out. And that's probably disappointing for them. Or if they're team sports, that's disappointing for other people on your kid's team. So you make a commitment to something and it's important you go, particularly because she's paid for half of the activities. So my view on activities, if one parent isn't going to do it or digs their uh, digs their heels in and says, we're not, we're not doing this, this is my parenting time, you're right. It is your parenting time. So if we're going to schedule the kids for activities, either make sure there is complete buy-in from both parents, that the children will at least go to most of those extracurricular activities on both parents' parenting time, or if they're only happening and they're only really going on your time, perhaps you only schedule those activities on your time. As you say, you believe there's deeper issues with her and don't want to start a fight. Again, on the extracurricular activities, schedule them as best you can, but children not going to school, there's likely going to be a larger problem with the school itself. And I do whatever you can, if you do have a good relationship with your ex to accommodate those kids being at school every day, they need to be there. Darren Schmidt. You know, I, I think skipping cool is skipping school is cool. Sorry. I conflated my words. That That's why. Cause you skipped school. Yeah. Anyone listening to this would know that it's like this guy, 
This guy took a, a law degree he downloaded on well, uh, on the internet and took it to Staples. And you and I Xerox. both are law school dropouts. We don't talk about it often. <laughs> you, I did just one semester in the U.S. and quit. You did your year and quit. So there you go. We looped it into our Canadian education and completed it. So we are legit lawyers. Rob, perhaps more than me, because he can speak. I think the, I totally agree, Rob, with what you've said. I've had cases, I think I've talked about this previously, where I was children's counsel for a couple of kids on a trial, two-day trial. The issue there was dad did not want to deliver the children to their sporting activities when his parenting time was scheduled, arguing that it was not quality parenting time for him. Both children were involved in higher level involvement in their respective activities, baseball, uh, dance, and hockey, things like that. They shared the cost, but dad would often not deliver the kids to their sporting events because he just decided it was not best for the children to do that. Rather, they should be just spending time with him, sitting in his house, chatting with him or whatever, right? So this goes to trial and ultimately dad's parenting time was reduced because of this sort of misconduct, if you will, in the eyes of the judge. Strong approach. Yeah, judge was basically saying, look, you think it, sir, you think it's your parenting time. It's your children's parenting time with you. And if you think they can't sense your presence in the stands when they're participating in these activities, you would be wrong. And I mean, I recall that when I was a, a young child, I did minor sports throughout, um, successful enough in them to become a lawyer. And um, my, <laughs> I, like I, what? I <laughs> my, <laughs> my, my parents were not separated, but you know, I always knew when, when they were there and I always appreciated when they were sitting in the stands and, and watching me. And I think they made it to most of my games and encouraged me to participate. And it was, it was really a great thing. So, and the other thing I would say here, just as a total aside, you know, it is okay for parents to show up to the activities together, but separate. So they both attend, they drive separately, perhaps even with new partners, and they're all there cheering on their child. No, no scene needs to be made. They're all just in the stands watching the volleyball, watching the hockey, and congratulating the child after the game. If you're not the one with the parenting time at that time, saying hello at the end of the game, having a little chat. And then the child goes away with your ex. That's a wonderful thing too. So hopefully your ex-spouse can get on track, get the health concerns in order and attend these events. If not, it might be an instance where you look at trying to alter that parenting time as a last resort, as an option of last resort. I'm going to cross my arms here and I'm going to be a little bit of a contrarian. And I, I completely agree Ooh with everything you have said, Darren, from the perspective of this parent, clearly this parent wants children to go to all their extracurriculars. But I'm going to flip this around if you're on behalf of the other parent saying, no, I don't want to do extracurriculars. Now, that's not to say that saying I have a headache and we're all going to sit at home and the kids are going to sit with me at home is acceptable. But maybe there is a migraine that night. That's right. But maybe there is that sincere situation where one parent has overloaded the kids with activities and the other parent is sort of going enough. 
I mean, we can afford this. Are the activities reasonable? Let's say they're community sports and they are. And it's just, it's a lot of extracurriculars. Maybe it's hockey, maybe it's baseball, plus a choir, a couple other things. And one parent sort of says, enough. I want, maybe I'm an alternating weekend dad. And every time on my parenting time, I don't have a lot of it. And you're overloading me with activities. In that situation, that case where you were children's counsel, was it a shared parenting regime, or no. did the other the other parent had limited parenting time? Very limited. I, th- I believe it was one night a week, and the activities were falling it, on that day. And but that parent's activity there, got clawed back. Yes, net wow. over the course of a year, it got clawed back. And holy smokes. The the consistent thing here with the listener's question is that there was consent to all of the activities by both parents. Ah, okay. So it wasn't like one parent was driving the bus and the other one was sort of saying, I want quality parenting time. No one listening to this should be either in the situation of learning that their children are enrolled in an activity after the fact yep. or enrolling their children in an activity without consulting the other guardian Absolutely. or guardians. Absolutely. So all of these problems are avoided if you're actually consulting with one another in accordance with your provincial family law legislation or current order or agreement, which almost certainly would set out 99 times out of 100, both parents have to be involved in making decisions to this effect. Then no one should be enrolling a child unilaterally. There should be no problems. And everyone knows when there's an enrollment yeah, the activity is going to take place on this time each week or every other week, or roughly the amount of times that there's going to be practices and all those things. So I have some sympathy if if a parent's health circumstances change after enrollment, Mm -hmm. but long-term, I don't have a lot of sympathy if you've ultimately consented to the enrollment and then just go, I'm not delivering these kids. Then the answer is, I can't have the parenting time. Because the activities are paramount to the kids, presumably. They want to go. They're getting benefit out of it. Um, deliver the, the children to the sporting event. And if you can't, rearrange the parenting time. That would be my And suggestion. have that communication with your ex. And as this person says, don't want to start a fight. Hopefully there's an open door. We got a speak pipe. Should we listen to that one next? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Good morning, Robin Darren. I just really wanted to thank you so much and applaud your efforts for making the whole complex legal process with divorce more easy easy and accessible for those without a legal background. Thank you so much for that. I have another question. And that question is, when you finally get your divorce completed, and the settlement is assigned. If one party is reluctant to pay the settlement to the other party, how do we proceed with this uh, issue? How is this uh, how is this issue resolved? Thank you, Darren Schmidt. What do you think? Okay, just so I'm clear, there's there's some final settlement. I don't. I'm not sure if the word separation agreement was used, but some final. I don't think so. Just said settlement. Final arrangement is affected, and let's, for the sake of this question, assume that means sort of either pen to paper between the parties and their lawyers, or a final order 
or even an interim order. Some order or agreement is in place. It's not just verbal dialogue, although that too can affect final settlement. But let's assume there's some finality here in writing. And the other party is now not willing to comply with the term of that formal settlement. So your options are somewhat limited, but you have some options. So option one is do nothing. Wait for the other party to comply with the order. I don't know that that's a great option, but what that option provides you is the opportunity to lessen conflict, let the other party at least give them some room to try and come up with the financing to affect the payment. I understand this to be a sort of monetary settlement of some sort, a payment of some type. Let them come up with the money somehow, some way, and you also save yourself some time and anguish and money yourself in the sense of not having to file something in court. So that's the sort of do nothing approach and hoping that they ultimately, the other side ultimately comes around to say, you know what, here's the money or let's come up with a structured way to pay it off over time. The other option in my mind is the more extreme option, but maybe the necessary option that's to file an application in court or a motion, whatever it might be called, wherever you live, presuming you already have an open file number, some application or motion to enforce the agreement or the provisions of the agreement that are not being followed by the other party. And sometimes this seems counterintuitive because people question, well, why did I do the agreement in the first place if I just have to go to court and get an order to enforce it? It seems duplicitous to have to do that. And I would sympathize with you on that front, but unless you go to court to enforce it, get an order to enforce, which would then allow you to uh, perhaps do things like file that enforcement order on a piece of land that the other party owns or basically secure that order some way. You could garnish their wages. There's a host of things you could do to possibly enforce the order. And you may be able to do that already based on the agreement you have. So that's something you could specifically seek legal advice on. But presuming you need to go to court to enforce it, you get an order to enforce, and then you can start doing things to actually enforce. And you may get court costs to have to go to court to do that. That would seem rational to ask for costs and that you would get costs to do that because you already made an agreement. When people make agreements, they're presumed to want to be bound to them subject to some very narrow exceptions like duress or undue influence or unconscionability or very narrow exceptions. So I see your options as twofold. Either do nothing and hope things work out or try and enforce the agreement or order in court and then take some extra steps to try and enforce it monetarily in the sense of registering it on land or trying to seize assets or garnish wages and things like that that would probably require some specific legal advice. Normally, self-represented parties wouldn't do the enforcement piece. But in any event, that those are my thoughts. Rob, what do you think? I completely agree with everything you've said in terms of practicality, because we're not clear where this person is at in terms of agreement, whether it's been signed with lawyers, whether documents have been submitted to court. So I would say this in terms of practicality, for anyone that is negotiating an agreement or hasn't signed anything yet, and if you do not have a lawyer or you do have a lawyer, 
you can do something magical if there's two lawyers on both sides of the file with something called trust conditions. And trust conditions are special promises, basically, between lawyers to do certain things in certain time periods. Otherwise, if we breach those conditions to other lawyers, we can get in trouble with our law society or our governing bodies. And the classic example of what we do when signing an agreement, let's say there's some proceeds either held in trust or money splitting somewhere that needs to be divided up or someone's owed some money under the agreement. What we will do is say, yes, we acknowledge mom or dad is owed so much money from this one pot of money and the lawyer might send a trust check, which means the lawyer has received the money on behalf of the parties and is sending it to the other lawyer for the other person saying, you may only release this check to the other person um, after they have signed the agreement. So it does two things at once. It's an inducement to the other party, of course, to sign the agreement to say, yes, we're going to sign it, so we're done. But it also gives all parties certainty of payment because we know once we sign the agreement, we're both going to be made whole because we're both going to divide up the money How or other things that we're splitting up, say it's a release of property or something else, anything we want someone to do, a release on insurance, uh, maybe some corporate paperwork to release someone's name off a company. If there's certain obligations on the parties to an agreement, that is, what do you want them to do under the agreement? By doing that with your lawyer and with the other lawyer, by trust condition, hopefully, it basically forces everyone to comply contemporaneous with signing that agreement. So no one is stuck later on going, yeah, I have this agreement that everyone signed, but no one's actually performed or done what they said they would do under the agreement. Now, how do I enforce? And that avoids the problem of saying, now, how do I enforce? Because we're all going to do our obligations contemporaneous with signing. Cool. Well, thank you always for the speak pipe. Of course, Rob, you send us those, you'll, you'll get quasi priority. You'll get uh, bumped to the top because we love hearing your voice and it's a deeper connection with us to engage with you, the listener. And we know it can be intimidating to leave the voicemail message. Of course, you don't have to leave your name. You don't have to leave any personal details in it. And we... Um, we enjoy hearing them from you and we know the other listeners enjoy hearing it as well. Cause otherwise you have to listen to me mostly read the questions or, on email. Or maybe it's just you and I calling in voicemails and disguising our voices. <laughs> Hello, Rob and Darren. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Should we do try and fit one, one more in here, Rob? Let's do one more. Okay. This is, a, I believe, a two-part question. I know you pre-read these, and then you uh, you sonk me, I, Rob. I just read them real quick while you're reading them, and then I'm like, oh, I read it so fast. I'm going to cut you off, Darren. Uh, I won't <laughs> do that to you tonight. You can always, because it helps expedite things. Okay, listener says, hello. Thank you for your podcast. It's brought to light many things in my husband's legal case with his ex-wife, so I have a few questions. Well, thank you very much for listening, and hopefully you and your husband are getting benefit from listening to us. Situation one, two years after my husband's divorce, one day after the statute of limitations in our jurisdiction expired, although extended because the courts were closed, uh, brought an the opposing party brought an application against my husband to overturn a separation agreement they signed. The opposing party stated she signed the agreement under duress. Uh, 
now we say the only duress was there was a deadline for a new mortgage to go through so that presumably, and I'm reading into this, uh, pushed the urgency of this. The opposing party now wants my husband's pension that she agreed pensions were not going to be divided in the separation agreement. At the time, they did not get family law valuations of their pensions. She also has a pension too, but it's valued less than my husband's pension. So the opposing party is also claiming there was improper disclosure. She wrote the entire agreement that deals with the children and their upbringing, parenting time, decision-making, child support, spousal support, and property division. So I read from that last sentence that it was the, uh, the opposing party that actually took a lot of the efforts to draft the agreement that she's now challenging and also saying that was subject to duress. Uh, question one, do you think she'll get the separation agreement overturned because she changed her mind about wanting his pension? If she doesn't, is it likely she will have to pay my husband's legal costs in challenging the agreement? Okay, Rob, what do you think on this? So what we're not clear about, and I read, th- I, I did jump ahead and read through the next nice. piece of this question. We know they're in Ontario. So the big piece for me that sticks out, uh, as as you and I talk about all the time, in BC to where you are, to sign a binding separation agreement, you do not need independent legal advice, meaning you don't need to meet with a lawyer, you don't need to sign it up with a lawyer. Whereas in Alberta, uh, to make an agreement really binding, meaning you can't open it up or really go back and say, that isn't what I meant, this, this isn't what I wanted, you do need a lawyer to sign that agreement with you under our family law statutes. So neither Darren or I definitively know the answer of whether you need independent legal advice. And also, we don't know from the question whether there were lawyers involved. Uh, As you say, she wrote the entire agreement that deals with children and everything else. And it's just one piece that she's looking to potentially overturn. But the one thing we can point at, lawyers or not, she's stating she signed the agreement under duress. She now has to overcome the hurdle of proving she was under duress. And often when we sign these agreements... And they're depending on how you drafted your agreement or what you did sign, there's likely language in there that said everyone is satisfied with what they're signing. They understand basically what they're giving up from their basic uh, presumptions under family law, uh, from the family law legislation, what you're entitled to receive, presumably about half, because you want the deal that's in front of you. And she likely would have had to sign something to that effect somewhere in the agreement. And it's now on her to overcome those pieces, uh, particularly if this is two years later, to say, oh, this isn't the deal I wanted, and here's why. That's what she'll have to satisfy first. Uh, And that's likely a high bar, depending on what you've done. But if you both had an agreement, and you've been operating under that agreement, doing other things, for example, dealing with your kids, child support, spousal support, and property, and you followed all those other pieces that have th- those pieces of the agreement, and she's not seeking to change those. I'd think it would be a high bar to open that up again. Uh, will she have to pay your husband's legal costs? Well, if you have a lawyer and go to court and fight about that, and you're successful on challenging her potential application to open this up again, you very well might get costs. Darren Schmidt, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean. 
just by way of um, example, personal example. Yeah. I, I was just arguing about kind of setting aside an agreement of sorts, and I won't get too detailed. But I was in court all day on this matter in a summary trial format. And I may talk about a summary trial next week when I'm by myself versus a real trial, but summary trial is just a condensed form of trial. And my client's the one seeking to have a agreement of sorts set aside. And I was basically in a um, boxing match of sorts, mental boxing match with the judge all day. Like I, I, I had a hard, I had a hard go of it making my arguments doesn't mean we, we may not win, but it's a high burden, as you say, Rob, to say, I no longer wish to be bound by something that I sign. We presume as a policy, um, from a policy perspective across Canada, basically, you're presumed to want to be bound to things you sign, because if we didn't have that presumption, agreements wouldn't be worth the paper they're written on. So, I totally echo your comments to that. And let's go to the second situation the listener uh, provides and then the question that they ask. So they say within the separation agreement that the ex-wife included a clause that states that spousal support would end if she remarries or cohabits with someone else. And a few years after the separation with the uh, ex-husband, she had a child with someone else who she was engaged to. At that point, the husband stopped spousal support thinking that in Ontario, where they live, uh, your common law, if you have a child with them, I'm not certain whether that's true or not, but nonetheless, it appears the opposing party had a child with someone else, was in a relationship with, with them, and was probably cohabiting with them. The separation agreement says spousal support would end if that condition was met. The question is, do you think the ex-wife would be successful in her now claim for spousal support if she was to get the agreement overturned? Um, to do that. So Rob, what do you think on this? Uh, much as you just said, somebody signs something, we expect you to be bound by it. What we know from this listener sounds like ex-wife is very keen on certain provisions applying and others not applying. And our courts are not really keen when folks come in and say, yes, we're going to pick and choose our agreement, choose what applies and choose what doesn't apply. And as the listener says, direct quote, the ex-wife included a clause that states spousal support will end if she remarries or cohabits. Did she draft this? Again, if that's what she drafted, I, I am loath to use the words pretty clear because we don't know. But at the same time, if that is what's there, she has moved on. She's with someone else. If we are able to ascertain the intentions of the parties, if not on a plain reading of that agreement, sounds like uh, this lister may be successful uh, in not having to pay spousal support anymore. But in, in terms of practical application, is it a good thing if you just spontaneously yourself stop paying spousal support because the agreement suggests you can? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, if the if the other party here is successful in having spousal support continue, you may owe some arrears. Uh, but at the same time, what's worse, owing some arrears or being in a situation where you've overpaid and then you're looking to claw back some of those overpayments that you've made where that other party may not have the cash to pay you back. So best of luck. All right, Rob, uh, surf's up, dude. 
Time for you to hit well, the Darren, beach. Well, Darren Schmidt, thank you so much. I look forward to my vacation. Perhaps you and I will have a FaceTime call. Or who knows, maybe you'll show up at my vacation. Because so everyone aware, my, my family likes you very much. We did have some brief discussion about whether you'd make a surprise cameo appearance on the vacation. Uh, and if that does happen, you know, may, maybe you and I are cutting an episode from the beach. Although that appears unlikely regardless. Thank you, everyone, for your questions this week. Darren Schmidt, thank you for being with me. This has been Divorced and Done, and we look forward to being with you again. Divorce obviously sucks, but at least it only costs 20 bucks. 2020, 2020, $20 divorce. Let's get a 2020, 2020, $20 divorce. We can save money and split our stuff. We'll both pitch in 10 bucks. I saw this ad on the truck and it, it seems totally legit right like no, no, we, we can trust the truck ad for legal advice it's, right it's, it's like no red flags here let's get a 2020 2020 dollar divorce let's get a 2020 2020 dollar divorce let's get a 2020 2020 dollar divorce let's get a 2020 2020 dollar